Welcome to the Life Church Reno podcast. Here at Life Church, we seek to love God, love others, and make a difference. From wherever you're listening, we pray that this message impacts you. Well, good morning, Life Church. It's good to see you. Good morning, Life Church. It's good to see you. There we go. Hey guys, today we are finishing up our series on God's passion, our purpose. In the first two weeks, we, Pastor Dave looked at God's heart for the littles, for the children, God's heart for the least of these, that was last week. And then today we are looking at God's heart for the lost. And I don't know about you guys, but in the last three weeks since we've started this series, it feels like I'm having a lot of opportunities to really have to check my heart and, and, and engage with the least of these and with helping children and, and with the lost. And so, um, and so as, as we finish out this series today, I just wanna invite you guys to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 15, verses one and two. That was good. All right, Luke 15, verses one and two. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So our, our scripture today, we're gonna be looking at the totality of, of Luke chapter 15. And so what's happened just right before this in Luke chapter 14 is Jesus has been teaching on taking care of the least of these. And now we hit Luke chapter 15. And as Jesus is talking, there are sinners and there are tax collectors that are coming to listen to Jesus. And so the backdrop of these three stories that Jesus is gonna tell that talks about the heart of God towards the lost is kind of set in this, this thing where we have these, these Pharisees and these teachers of the law that are now muttering to themselves. You can almost feel the eye rolls happening as these sinners and these tax collectors and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are wondering why would he hang out with these people? And so, you have to understand from Jewish culture that the Jewish people would be seen as righteous and they would have nothing to do with anyone that would be seen as a sinner or, un, or someone that is unclean or someone that is just a part of the different, uh, the different group. And so we have these two groups of people, the righteous people and the unclean people. And there would be no, uh, there would be no intermingling between these two groups. In fact, Jews would go as far to say that Jews wouldn't even talk about the law with the wicked. That there's this idea that the sinner's gotta show some remorse, some movement towards God before a Jew would even interact and talk about God's law. We see this in, um, in rabbinical writings that let not a man associate with the wicked, not even to bring him the law. So there was this idea that there are two separate groups. There are righteous and there are unrighteous or unclean or the lost. And it is under this backdrop that Jesus is now gonna begin to, to push against this idea that we should have nothing to do with the unclean or the lost or the sinner. Um, I worked in prison for a number of years and prison is the most segregated racist place that I have ever seen in my entire life. When, when you walk onto any yard, you will see three groups of people. You will see whites that are gathered together, you will see blacks gathered together, and you will see Hispanics gathered together. They do not interact with one another. They are divided on racial lines. The only time you would see them interacting with one another is if they're stabbing one another, and that's it. And that's kind of this idea that we see where there's this, this, this idea in psychology of in-group bias that we tend to look for people that look like us 
and we tend to look at others and make judgment calls as to that person doesn't look like me. And so Jesus is pushing back against this idea within this context, within this culture, but Jesus today is asking us that same question because sometimes we can get into this place where we begin to look at church as the place where saved people come and not a place where lost people come. And Jesus is pushing against this entire idea. And so Jesus now begins to tell three stories. And and so the first story here that uh, in Luke 15, verse four, it says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. So it's this idea. Jesus is is talking to a bunch of people that would know about shepherds and and the shepherd is going to see their sheep as valuable. And so Jesus is pointing to this idea of, hey, if you lost one of your sheep, aren't you gonna go after it? Aren't you gonna go find that sheep? And then Jesus continues with this second story. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. So we see this same pattern, that there's, there is um, the shepherd or the woman, and there is something that is lost, something of value that is lost, and then they will do everything in their power to find that lost thing, and then they will celebrate. They'll call their friends, they'll call um, their neighbors, and they, they will, they will, they will uh, throw a celebration. And then finally, Jesus gets to this third story, which is the story of the prodigal son. If you've been in church for any number of years, you've heard this story probably umpteen times. But in Luke 15, 11, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. So we see this progression from There's 100, lost one. There's 10, lost one. Now we're down to two, lost one. There was a man that had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he, the father, divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got uh, got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth with wild living. It is at this point in Jesus's stories that the crowd would have been aghast at this. This didn't happen in Jewish culture. In Jewish culture, a younger son, especially a younger son, but even an older son, would never ask for a father's inheritance before the father passed away. It was just noted in culture, you wait until, well, essentially dad is dead, and then you get some of the things that dad has. And so this younger brother, who wouldn't have even taken the majority of the father's property. He would have been owed about a third of the father's property. He goes and asks his father for this. And the father responds in a way that a Jewish father would never have responded. The father divides the property. So now all of a sudden this younger son is is in ownership of some of the father's property. And, And property in Jewish culture is where all of your money was tied up. You didn't have money in banks or a safe in your house. You had money that was tied into your land, into your crops, into your, um, your flocks and your herds. That's where it's also the father divides and gives about a third to the son. And it says the son sold all of that. So this now becomes a community catastrophe where now there's disgrace within the community because this younger son is selling off his father's property and he takes all that he has and he squanders it. And 
We know the rest of the story and we're gonna read more about it a little bit later on, but he finds himself in a pigsty saying, if I can just come home to my father and be a hired hand, and, and there's this connection with the father, and, and we'll get to that, but what we see in these three stories is we see three things about God's heart for the lost. We also see that God is giving us an invitation as being the hands and feet of Jesus and co-heirs with him Jesus is now asking us to see the lost in the way that he sees the lost. And so the first thing that we see here is that the God who sees the lost as priceless invites us to treat them that way. You see, in each of these three stories, we see something of value for each person. We see the shepherd who would value his sheep. We see the woman with 10 coins. She's going to value the coin. A father obviously values his two sons that he has. Have you ever lost anything of value? Have you ever lost a wedding ring? Have you ever lost your wallet? Have you ever lost something important? Have you ever lost your children? Or you tell your children that you've lost them, but you actually forgot about them, but we'll just keep that story between you and I. When you lose something, especially lose something of value, it creates an urgency in the way that we go about it. I have never lost my wallet at a fast food restaurant, but if I lost my wallet at a fast food restaurant and then realized it two hours later, I will climb in a dumpster at a fast food restaurant and go through trash bags in order to try and find my wallet. For those of you that may have lost your kids, maybe you lose your kid at Disneyland, that moment of panic and urgency that happens because something of value has now been lost. Uh, when I was a kid, I don't know why kids go through this phase, but they do go through this phase. It's, I'm now parenting this and it's annoying. But the, when I was a little kid, it's like every, every kid wants like their own pet, right? Like we have the family dog or whatever family animal you have. If you're cat people, that's fine. Jesus still loves you, I think. But, but every child goes through this phase where it's like, I want my own pet. I wanted an iguana when I was a kid. And my parents said, no, we're not getting an iguana, which I totally get now because my kids will never get an iguana. But, but my sister and I really wanted our own pets that we could keep in our room. And so my parents, for Christmas one year, showed up with pet rats. And so I had my pet, don't look at me that way, that's terrible. Anybody else proudly own a pet rat? There you go. Thank you, Jesus followers. Um, so my pet rat rascal was my little buddy. He'd hang out on my shoulder and we'd walk around and he was so cool. And then, and he'd just kind of like nibble on my earlobe a little bit. And like, it's a, that came out weirder than I meant for it to sound. But like, I loved my pet rat rascal and I would play with him constantly. And one day I had to go to basketball practice and I thought I'd put a uh, rascal back in his cage and shut the cage. And, um, and, and apparently when I got home from, from practice, I realized I hadn't done that that the cage was open and the rat was gone. And the sense of urgency in my little, whatever age I was, nine-year-old brain, was I had lost my pet rat rascal. And so I looked under the bed, I looked under the desk, I looked in my closet, I was convinced that he had gone through a little hole on, on the side of a cabinet in the house and that he was gonna scare my mom one day or the dog would eat my pet rat rascal. And it turns out he was just sleeping in my sweatshirt on the bed. And I found him and I rejoiced because I had found something that I valued. And it's in the same way that Jesus sees the lost. Jesus sees the lost as priceless. He sees the lost as something of value. And, and he asks us, do we see the lost as valuable? 
We might see a family member as valuable if they're lost, they've wandered away from God. But do we see our coworkers as valuable? Do we approach the lost, the, the lost people that are in our lives, our neighbors, our coworkers, the people that we're in community with, do we approach that with an urgency as something that is of value? And, and here's the question for us is, what would change in our lives if we saw the lost as valuable? What would look different? What would that look like if we had this sense of value placement, this sense of urgency that we see in these three stories with these three people relentlessly pursuing something of value? You see, all practical purposes, Jesus is connoting value by spending time with sinners and tax collectors. He's putting in the time in relationship. And that is what it looks like for us, that, that sometimes we so insulate ourselves away from people that are lost that we don't actually take the time to be in relationship. And what Jesus is saying to us is that, hey, if it's something that you had of value, like a wedding ring or a wallet or a pet that has run away, you're going to search with urgency because you value that thing. And Jesus wants us to value the lost in the same way that he values the lost. The second thing that we see with the heart of God here is that the God who relentlessly pursues invites us to join his pursuit. You see, the story of the Bible is not just a story of what, it's not a story of what we do to get to God, but it is God's story of what he did to come to us. That the story of the Bible, if you could reduce it down into a 30 second uh, soundbite, is that, that we were created, we failed, we had God's law, we couldn't live up to it, and God sent his son to relentlessly pursue us, not based on anything that we can do. And we see this so evident in these stories here. It's not the lost that find God, but it's God that runs after them, that relentlessly pursues. We see it in the story of the sheep. Sheep are dumb animals, like super dumb animals. If you have one sheep that is away from the flock, that sheep is not going to be able to find its way back to the flock. That, that, that sheep is not going to be able to find shelter to hide from, from wild animals. This is kind of how dumb sheep are. Um, we have some friends that had several sheep uh, a few years ago, and um, they were away on a trip, and there was a massacre, and there was only one sheep left. Char Charlotte the sheep was left, and Charlotte probably survived because she was ponied up next to the llama, and, 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 and poor Charlotte the sheep, for the next several days, just out of uh, sheer confusion, would just let out these, these very pathetic, sad buzz. And the problem is, is that they live in a valley, and so these, these sad buzz would echo off the mountains and come back to Charlotte, so now Charlotte thinks she's hearing her friends, so now she would let out a baa of excitement, a baa? And then the echo would come back, and then after a few moments, it's like, well, I just heard an excited baa, but now there's no sheep, my friends aren't coming to me, and then there's a confused baa, and then there's this pattern of sad and excited and confused baa that is happening in this valley for poor little Charlotte. Sheep are Dumb. A lost sheep is a dumb sheep is a dead sheep. And we see this in the story of the shepherd. David Guzik says this, that many rabbis of that time believed that God received the sinner who came to him the right way. But in the parable of the shepherd and the sheep, 
Jesus taught that God actively seeks out the lost. He does not grudgingly receive the lost. Instead, um, instead he searches after them. God finds the sinner more than the sinner does find God. And we see this, we see the shepherd leaving the 99, leaving the people that are already found and he's going on a journey. He is relentlessly pursuing. He's trying to figure out where this sheep might be in order to bring it back. And when he finds it, he says that he is joyous and he places the sheep on his shoulders and carries it back to the flock. And that is, that is the heart of God. It's a relentless pursuit. A lost sheep cannot find its way back. In the same way, a lost coin cannot find its way back to the woman. A lost coin cannot reveal itself. It is lost. And so we see the woman in relentless pursuit where she's sweeping and cleaning her house and probably moving rugs and furniture until she finds the lost coin. And then there's a celebration that happens. And then finally, we see this most poignantly in the story of the prodigal son. And so we see this prodigal son that he's disgraced his family, he's squandered everything of his father's, and he is now lying in a pigsty. If you wanted a definition of sinner in Jewish culture, Jesus just painted it. A younger brother who disgraced his father by asking for a third of his father's things, then selling his father's property, and then going to a faraway land and squandering all of his money and now laying with the most unclean animal that a Jew would never associate with. This is a lost sinner. And so we see, we catch up with the story where the son is laying in this pigsty and he's saying, maybe I can just go back to my father. Maybe if I just grovel, I'm gonna come back in this way. I'll, I'll, uh, I know what I'll do. I'll come back as just a, uh, a hired servant. That word to, uh, means actually an apprentice, to come under an apprenticeship of some, someone that worked as a hard laborer. So not coming back as a son, just coming back at an apprentice level that I can just come back to this place because if I can just do that, then I'll have a place to sleep and I'll have some food to eat. And so he concocts this story and he begins his journey back to his father. And you know on that journey, he's rehearsing everything that he has to say to the father so that he might be able to come back as a hired servant. And so in, in Luke 15, verse 20, it says, so he got up and went to his father. This is one of my favorite phrases in all of scripture. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. You see, the father's heart in this moment, the father doesn't even wait for the son to get to him. The father doesn't wait for the son to go through his little spiel of all the things and what he wants to do. It says that while he was a long way off, that the father sees his son coming down the road, and the father does what no Jewish man would ever do, that he picks up his robe, therefore re uh, revealing his bare legs, and runs down. You would never see a Jewish man do this. You, you'll see Jewish children, you might see a Jewish uh, woman, but you would never see a patriarch, the father of a place, lift up his robe in a disgraceful way and run to his son. And before his son can even say a word, he grabs him and kisses him. And then we see in verse 21, then the son said to him, he's still, he's got this whole speech, he's rehearsed, and so he said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, but the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. That would have been the father's robe. 
put a ring on his finger, a ring that would signify you are welcome back into the family, and sandals on his feet. You see, we see this idea that the son thinks he's coming back to the father, but Jesus flips this entire story on its head, and he shows a, a father who has raised his robe and is running down the street and kisses his son before his son can say anything. And then you notice the son, after his speech is done, the father doesn't even respond to the son. It says that the father said to his servants, quick, bring the robe, bring the ring, bring sandals. You see, the repentance does not trigger the kiss. The kiss facilitates the repentance that we have a God that relentlessly pursues us. He relentlessly pursues the lost. There's a poem that I love by Francis Thompson called The Hound of Heaven. It's this beautiful story of this, this lost person and this relentless pursuit of a God that like a hound of heaven hunts down the lost and brings them into being found. That he takes dead things and makes it alive and we see no bigger picture than this than the work that Jesus did on the cross. You see, these, these stories are a foreshadowing of what Jesus is ultimately going to do, that my relentless pursuit of the lost is going to lead me to live the perfect life, die the perfect death, be resurrected three days later, and to now sit at the, the, the right hand of the Father. And so we see this relentless pursuit that Jesus spared no expense by laying down his own life and he now asks us the question of, will we spare no expense in relentless pursuit of the lost? Now, what does this look like to relentlessly pursue the lost? What it doesn't mean is it doesn't mean you go home and get your speaker and a microphone out of storage and go down to Plum in Virginia and tell everybody they're going to hell. That's not what that means. What it does mean is it does mean that we enter into relationship with lost people that God has placed in our lives. You see, the, God works in relationship. This is why we see Jesus spending time with the sinners and the tax collectors. It happens in the place of relationship, and you, you might even say of like, well, I, I don't know how to share my faith, or I'm new in my faith, and I, I don't know what that looks like, and I don't know all the scriptures, and it's, no, you're, you're missing the point. God invites us to enter in based off of our giftings. My father-in-law, um, when we go on a family cruise, he will meet a random stranger at breakfast, and seven hours later, he is still talking to that random stranger, and that random stranger seems to be enjoying the conversation, he has led many people to Christ through, through that. And at, at the bare minimum, they are leaving with a lot of God knowledge being unpacked for them. And that's, that's my father-in-law's gifting. That is not my gifting. My gifting is spending time with people one-on-one -on -one and building that relationship. I had, had a buddy text me the other day and he had a, a longtime friend that, that, was, that was far from God and angry at God because of the state of his life and he wanted to talk through the gospel. And he's like, where should I start? And I said, tell your story. Just tell your story of how God took you where you were receiving all of your value in the things of this world and then you found Jesus and how radically your life has changed. Start there. But what it starts with in the relentless pursuit, it starts with spending time with people. It starts with building relationships with people. It starts with trying to understand where people have come from 
And so God invites us to spend time. This is why as a church that we're launching Carson Campus and we're launching, launching Sparks Campus is because of this heart for the lost. It's this, this idea that this burden that, you know, four years ago when Christy and I were standing on that property there, the, this song we were playing was, was about God's heart for the lost, that, that, that is the heartbeat of God is the lost people that don't know Jesus. It's why, it's why as a church we're doing that, but I don't wanna let you guys off the hook because it's, you can't just say like, hey, we're a church that believes in that and we got multiple campuses and so I don't have to share my faith at all. And that's just not true. Invite people to church. When's the last time you invited a coworker to church? When's the last time you talked to a neighbor? When's the last time you talked to the person in the cubicle next to you that you're pretty sure will never get saved. When's the last time you took that chance? You see, the third thing, and then we're done, is that the God who rejoices when the lost are found invites us to rejoice with him. See, we see in all three of these stories, the shepherd and the woman with the coin and the prodigal son, we see a celebration that happens at the end of these stories. Now, in the first two, there's a very clear delineation that when a lost person is found, that there is rejoicing that happens and celebration that happens in heaven. But in this third story, in the prodigal son, we see this, uh, verse 23, it says, bring the fattened calf and kill it. This is the father speaking. He's placed the robe on his son. He's placed the ring on his son. And, and he tells his servants, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is, and is found. And so they began to celebrate. And so it's this idea that there's a celebration that happens not only in heaven because there's a dead thing that has now been made alive in Christ. There is a lost thing that has now been found in Christ, but it is also our invitation today to celebrate with those that find Jesus, because that is the heartbeat of God. This is why when we do baptisms that we cheer at the end of each public profession of faith, because it's a celebration. So we see this picture here of the, the father killing the fattened calf and throwing this feast. But this is where the story twists just a little bit, because Jesus doesn't end the chapter there but he introduces a new character. He introduces the older brother, the brother we haven't talked about yet, the brother that didn't ask for his inheritance, the brother that stayed home with his father, the brother that did everything the way that he was supposed to do. And so we see this celebration happening and it says that the older brother was in a field and, and he asked some of the servants, why is there a celebration happening? Why is there a feast going on over at dad's house? And the servants say, oh, your younger brother has come home. He was lost and now he's found. And so we pick up with this in verse 28. And it says, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. So here we see the heart of the father both ways. We see the heart of the father running to his lost son, but we also see the heart of the father going out to the older judgmental brother. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, 
yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? It's, it's like he's saying like, dead, this is the most disgraceful thing. I, I'm, I'm gonna uh, access my inner like teenage angsty voice right now. Like, I can't believe this. Like, your son disgraced you and he took a third of everything you had and then Junior goes off and spends it all and he's lying in a pig pen and he squanders your property and he squanders your money. You're not getting that back and now he comes walking down the road and like, okay, yeah, you put your robe on him and a ring on him. You killed a fattened calf? You've never even killed me a goat. And in that culture, they didn't eat meat every day. When I, I spent two months in Turkey and I, I lived in a remote village uh, for, for six weeks with the family, I had a little bit of goat once in six weeks. There's not a lot of meat being consumed on a day-to-day basis. Meat was, was, was held back for high religious holidays, for festivals, for weddings, for Passover. And so there, there's this beautiful picture of the celebration that's happening, that this is the biggest thing in the world. I'm gonna kill the fattened calf, and yet the son who has stayed and obeyed, although it seems very you know, grudgingly, he's obeyed his father, he's done everything a father wants him to do. He's missing the heart of the father, he's completely missing it. Tim Keller says this, that, that when he's talking about the two sons, that one is very, very good and one is very, very bad, and they are both alienated from the father's heart. Each one of them wanted the father's things, but not the father. And so we see in verse 31, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And I wonder for us today, do we sometimes not want certain types of people to find Jesus because we see them as the other? because we see them as unholy or lost or unclean? Do we not want to celebrate that? My mother-in-law was um, raised in a very not Christian home. And there's like different levels of not Christian homes. There's like the not Christian home, but wow, super reasonable people. I wouldn't mind my kids playing at their house. There's that level of not Christian. And then there's the other not Christian where you are like, oh yeah, they're not Christian. And that was kind of more my mother-in-law's house. And and, um, and so, and, and she knew this, this gal through high school that, uh, and, and this other gal and her and her family attended church and they, they, they went every single Sunday. And, and so, and I don't know what all happened there, but in, in my mother-in-law's early adulthood, she, she came to faith in Jesus and, and she showed up at church where this lady was. And this lady later said that the first thought she had when, that, when my mother-in-law walked into church is what is she doing in my church? And I wonder today, who is that she? Who is that he? Who is that other? Who is that group that if they walked into church and they sat down next to you, you wouldn't wanna talk to them? You see, what, what this lady, this other lady in my mother-in-law's story, what, see, what she had forgotten is that she was once lost too. 
And she had been found a long time ago. So what God is calling us to do today is he's saying, do you see the lost as valuable? Do you relentlessly pursue the lost? And do we celebrate when someone that is so lost is found? And I wanna invite you guys to bow your heads and close your eyes. In this moment, as we wrap up this series on God's heart for the littles, God's heart for the least of these, and God's heart for the lost, I want you to find that place in your heart and say, God, help my heart beat for the things that your heart beats for. God, even right now, I just pray that images of people in, in, in our lives would begin to just show up in our minds, the, the person that we don't want to interact with, God, that desperately need Jesus, I, I pray right now that you give us a heart and a passion for your ways, for the things that make, make your heart beat go. God, help us to be vessels to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Life Church Reno podcast. Remember to subscribe to hear more messages like this. And you can also find more information at lifechurchreno.com. Blessings to you.